Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. Uh, we're here today with a, another listener question, which is fantastic. And today Excellent. we have a question from our friend PJ. And he asks uh, a question I thought was very provocative. What Agile practices have you left behind? In other words, is there something that you thought was going to make a huge difference, but then you realized somehow that you were wrong? I think this is fantastic, and and for as long as we've been doing Agile, I think we we definitely have some things that we've changed our mind on, and it's a, a good to be asked about that. So what's um, entertaining is, is PJ is an old friend and has been doing Agile before I even knew knew the word. So <laughs> I, I imagine he has some ideas as well, but he's asked us for hours. So I'm I'm pleased to be uh, privileged enough to be able to do that. And uh, and Scroll, I think you said you have some very concrete things that you you know that you approach differently these days. Absolutely. So as most folks probably know, I'm a consultant and I work with lots of startups. So my world is all about scaling and learning very quickly. So it's very much not an environment in which predictability is very important. And that's different to lots of people's environments. So if you're in a very steady state, cash cow, known product kind of world where you're making tweaks to something, you may need lots of predictability. You may have project plans that are uh, worked out long in advance with a client, and therefore predictability really helps you. But in my world, productivity usually trumps product uh, predictability almost every time. And the way that shows up concretely is in practices like the Scrum practice of don't break the sprint. I'm not quite sure how the Scrum folks actually say that. I'm not a Scrum expert, but what I hear often is we've started our sprint and somebody came up with a new nifty idea. We're going to put that in the next sprint. And so they wait two weeks and do the next thing, by which time it's not important anymore or someone's done something else or they've lost two weeks in which they could have learned. I've got a client who's doing exactly that right now. They've got a very complex administrative system where the users are sitting at the next desk and the environment is changing very fast where they're they're learning lots of new things every single day about the environment in which their product exists. It's retail, so there's individuals, there's a high volume of people interacting with the system and those folks who are administering it inside and, and dealing with those people change their process almost every day. And when I showed up, the developers and the product managers were saying, gee, Squirrel, we're, we're just frustrated because it's so difficult to wait. How can we help the uh, internal clients to wait more? Because, of course, we can't break the sprint. <laughs> right. And I said, I've got this new crazy idea. It's called breaking the sprint. <laughs> Why don't we try doing that? And, it's in fact, we adopted some practices like Kanban and Elephant Carpaccio, and we're in the process of experimenting with those, and already they seem to be bearing fruit. How is this different for you? It sounds like this makes a lot of sense for your clients in this context. How does this change? How does this change from your previous beliefs? Sure. So one thing that I often find, and I can look back on myself now and, and see myself thinking this way, predictability is something that's really easy to grab onto. And you think, well, now we're going to be much more stable. It'll be better if we know what's going to happen. If we're able to say what's going to happen, at least for the next two weeks, we'll know what we're doing. We can focus on that. That'll be better. And the problem is the more I work with lots of different types of clients and teams in, in different situations, the more I, just, I figure out that better doesn't have a definition, or at least not a single definition for everybody. There's situations, and the one I just described is a perfect example, where better is actually being less focused and less predictable and more responsive to change 
because things are changing so fast. Right. And so at the time, previously, you, you didn't imagine that. You could always say, well, how, how could being focused be bad? This must be universally good, universally applicable to know that what you're doing over the next few weeks. Exactly. That's what I would have said in 2008 if you'd come along and asked me. I would have said, but what Agile does, among many other things, is it gives you a method of being more predictable and focusing in your team. And that's true. It can. But that's not the universal value. That's not the thing you're always looking for. Right. So you've so you've moved you've actually had that attachment to predictability and now are more sensing what you need in an environment and for your clients that's often the, more the flexibility and and overall productivity as opposed to that predictability. Exactly. And one other thing I should mention is that along with saying that breaking the sprint is okay, I'm often dropping estimation, which sounds like heresy. Oh my <laughs> gosh, how could you have agile software development without estimation? But it turns out that if you're in a very fast iterative environment, practices like Kanban and Elephant Carpaccio help you with that, then estimation becomes much less important because you can just look every day and see where you are. It's much more like steering a car than uh, uh, flying a rocket ship to the moon. You can say, well, I'm here and there's some roadworks in front of me. Okay, I'm going to turn right and go this different direction. You don't need to make a prediction about the overall minute by minute journey that you're making in your car. And that's similarly in that high iteration environment, it's much much better to say, yeah, I can do that this morning and then estimate it and say, oh, actually, it'll take until the afternoon and then deliver it in the afternoon and then see what's coming the next day than it is to say, this item will take 17 days and therefore it'll be done by the end of the month. That's not true in everybody's circumstance. I should underline that. That's true in my startup scaling fast iteration world. It's not necessarily true for everyone, but it's certainly one I've left behind. Right. And how about you, Jeffrey? So, so what have you left behind? Well, <laughs> for 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 better or worse, I actually um, have a blog post that I wrote uh, about ten years ago, uh, back in two thousand eight, called "Searching for an Agile Core." And link in the show notes, as usual. Yeah, I had been inspired by a talk I was at. Um, Scott Ambler was giving a, a talk on uh, Agile in practice, and he um, put up what he thought was his criteria for agile and i wanted to to then um it so happened actually i had i had just before i saw the talk i had posted my own attempt on the kitcon mailing list and uh, so that was an opportunity then for me to go ahead and and put the two up in a blog post so the uh the the, i put together a list of of six practices and um that's probably what first stands out to me is the fact that this is all practices rather than principles of course you and i just did our, our series of um, podcasts on the Agile principles. And I think at the time I was more aware of what practices were working for me. And so I put together that list. I thought it might be useful for you and I to just go through that list and see what we each think of them. Are these actually core practices without which you're not really doing Agile? That yeah. will let us know if we, what we've left behind. That sounds like a perfect plan. You're, you're very brave and, and thoughtful, by the way, for, for sharing your, your very old thoughts. <laughs> you, you were sharing some old thoughts of mine, which I'm very grateful are private. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about this, this topic. And uh, so it's, here it is for everyone to see what, what Jeffrey of 2008 was thinking. I wonder what Jeffrey of 2028 will be thinking. This might be a chance for some learning here where <laughs> I'll find oh out God, how it was. What did you say? Uh, Don't worry. I, I had the same reaction to my stuff. So what's the first one? Well, uh, number one on the list I thought was absolutely essential core agile practice was iterations. And at the time I had been doing uh, one week iterations. And of course, there's no way you could do anything smaller than that. So I was quite smug. Um, But I thought iterations were absolutely core because that's uh, sort of related, I think, to 
what you're describing, the predictability, we would, I would have said cadence uh, would have been the value. Uh, we can focus, we have plan and iteration, we'll know what we're going to do. And by the end of the week, we'll have something done. Uh, we get fast feedback, all, all kinds of benefits derived from it. So it, it didn't seem to me how you could possibly be uh, doing uh, proper agile without iteration. And, and as I was mentioning, I, I still love the iterative notion. And I, I would have said the same in 2008, by the way. I, I still am in, in a big fan of some form of iteration. But for me these days, very frequently, an iteration is a day or less. It's something very, very fast. And I and I think the other thing, too, if I think of something like Kanban, you kind of change the iteration to being a task rather than mm. time. Uh, uh, you can say, well, you know, we're going to pull the next task and then we can reflect after that. That's our iterations defined by the work rather than by mm -hmm. time. And here by iteration, I definitely meant we're going to be time box and we're going to we're going to have regular planning and review based on a fixed length of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think now I would be much more flexible and would would uh, not necessarily stick to the strict time based uh, iteration for for planning delivery and, mm -hmm. and all that. Um, next up was a practice that was a supporting that and for me went right along with it. So um, I mentioned before as part of the iteration was the planning and with that I would have used the planning mm -hmm. game, uh, uh, which would be the idea that uh, as a group, cross-functional group, which I like, I still like that, have both the business and technical people, we will uh, review the work that's going to go into the iteration and then we will uh, come up with an estimate based on story points and that game element of, um, you know, one, two, three, what's your, what's your estimate, and then have a discussion. There's a lot uh, valuable in that, uh, in the uh, making sure everyone has the same understanding of the work. If, if I bid seven and you bid three, then we have a very different understanding, either of what's being asked of us or what's possible in our system. And in either way, it's good to uh, drive that yeah, out. And the other part of the planning game in XP language, at least if I remember correctly, is that you're talking about uh, this topic very much with the business. So they get the opportunity to say, oh my God, that's a seven. Well, how about this other thing? And you say, that's a one. They say, we want that instead. <laughs> that's right. What options, what alternatives? So if I were to think of the planning game, for me, the, the, the real value of this was the getting everyone on the same page and joint understanding and trade-offs. Um, I'm I'm probably happier about having this as a as a core element, and I I think it also sits well with our recent discussion. I, I talked about the learning, the value of um, having a business person available, even for technical um, projects. Mm -hmm. I, I re recall that where I found out that some people who were left um, doing technical projects on their own without someone they could talk to the business, then they they felt like they had difficulty doing the right thing without someone to discuss trade-offs with. So in terms of um, planning game as a, as a, as a mechanism, if we say this, the, 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 the point of this is to have those cross-functional conversations and, um, a shared understanding, then I, I still like this. And interestingly, my reaction when you first read it out was to say, well, none of my teams do that anymore in the sense that I think you and, and lots of our listeners are probably thinking of it, where you have the little poker cards and you say one, two, three, and say how much your estimate is. Most of my teams that I work with don't do that. I don't take it out where it's working well, and there, there are cases where it is, that because we're so focused on productivity over predictability, what we tend to do or what I, my teams tend to do more is to have the cross-functional conversation, but perhaps much more frequently. So for example, every morning, have 
have a discussion about what's coming up that day and to emphasize less the number of points, but to emphasize rapid visible progress. So interestingly, I'd say this is one I've mostly left behind, but I'm not opposed to it. Right. Um, number three on my must-have list is uh, TDD, uh, test-driven development. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I still really really like TDD. I mean, True. I um, I I'll, I'll accept the idea that there may be times where you're going to choose not to as a as a conscious prag, um, pragmatic choice, but um, that's going to be really the exceptional. I think for me, TDD is still a, a must-have practice. Um, I, for me, I, I, I've, I've discussed TDD many times with people and I say, well, sure, we can, we always have the choice of not writing tests, but you know, I'll be slower yep. to me. I really just feel that as a, as a work practice, this makes me faster than not doing it. So why would I not mm-hmm. do it? And for me, I'm still a massive fan. I, when I write code, the very rare occasions when I get to do some myself, I do TDD to the degree I can. But interestingly, it tends not to be the focus of my consulting practice. So when I turn up to a client and I look at the biggest problems they have, it's often that the product and the development teams are holding separate stand-ups or they haven't delivered anything in a year or something like that. So there are bigger problems. And often when I get those resolved, that opens up the team to improving practices, for example, including TDD. But I don't tend to see it as a huge lever that I can pull to make a big change for a client quickly. But that's specific to my context, that uh, I'm still a massive fan. And if I could wave a magic wand and arrange for all of my teams to be doing it, I would. That's right. It's, that makes perfect sense to me that that uh, uh, the the benefits of TDD are are significant, but you, you can definitely <laughs> have worse problems. And that seems like that's where you're starting. That's where I live. Yep. Um, next up for me, automated acceptance tests. And um, this is probably more on my desirable list than, than must have. Um, I think that th- there have been many cases where uh, there are projects where you know you, you can you can get by with just doing some manual acceptance testing. Um, I will say for significant projects and the type I was doing at the time um, for long-lived products, then I think the benefits far outweigh uh, the cost. So I, I, I still like this practice, but I, would I say it's essential for uh, an agile team these days? I think, I think, I, I think probably not. And I'd be more radical than that. I would say there are certainly circumstances and environments which are very friendly to error. My favorite, which I think I've mentioned before is a e-commerce company where I was CTO and we had no tests at all. We'd just release. And if the site was broken, we hit a big red button and went back to the previous version and then fixed it. So that was an environment we were willing to take very large risks, do a small amount of manual testing, and that was okay for our world. But you wouldn't want to do that if you were building a financial trading system or uh, something that was heavily regulated. So I I think this changes a lot in different circumstances. Again, it's one that I am certainly a fan of, but often not one that I emphasize with my clients because it's situation specific how vital it is. I think the, the the really great point that you bring up here is that the, the cost of uh, recovery has a lot to do with how much you need to invest in this. Mm-hmm. I think the other element I'd put is is the cost of detection. Uh, one thing that's happened since 2008 is I'm much more interested these days in monitoring than in acceptance tests. So I, I care a lot more about knowing that the site is working in production now <laughs> than knowing that the, my, my tests are passing. And a, and a good definition of working, which might be people are paying money for a product or people are logging on and getting value from it. 
That's right. So if I can uh, discover quickly that we broke something post-release and I can effortlessly you know, get back to the working version, then that's probably more valuable for me than knowing that my tests in the test environment are passing. And, uh, but, and as a consequence, perhaps production is broken. So in, in terms of, of area of investment, uh, I, I definitely focus much more on production monitoring these days uh, before I would worry about acceptance testing. Similar kind of mindset. I want to catch errors early. It's just that I now see that uh, catching them in production. And, and this really in part reflects a move you know, completely to the SaaS model mm-hmm. uh, uh, since uh, software as a service, because I'm uh, so much taking that for granted as how I'm working. It's better for me to have that um, monitoring production. I think if I were back at sort of uh, software we're shipping off to other people and it's off the client site, then I might have a different view than the automated acceptance test probably gain in importance because I don't really have that same ability for production monitoring. Cost of recovery is very high. And the cost of recovery is high, exactly. That, so that that shifts things in balance here. So the principle, though, is, is the same, which is about learning about uh, um, problems as early as possible, fixing them while they're as cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. Number five, and uh, this is one that would be uh, very hard for me to say anything bad about, is continuous integration. Um, of course, uh, I got into um, Agile in the very early days and ended up working on cruise control. And uh, my conference uh, is the Continuous Integration and Testing Conference. And so, you did all that with PJ, our interlocutor here. So Exactly, that's right. He, he so, should uh, recognize this. So um, maybe maybe these days people would say something like continuous delivery or DevOps or whatever, but I, I still think of that as just end-to-end continuous integration. That's the phrase I probably would have used in 2007 or 2008, um, which I think is the same year that DevOps, uh, the first DevOps conference occurred was 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I still see that as... Um, as as a as a vital practice, mm. and me too. Uh, interestingly, it's pervaded at least my ecosystem so tightly, so so thoroughly that I, it's very rare that I come across a client who don't have it. So typically, they have it, but perhaps it's not running well, and that's something that I will focus on and try to help them improve. But it's rare that someone does not have some form of a continuous integration mechanism, which I think is a great victory for cruise control and all its descendants. That it's become a standard thing. <laughs> and I think what's, what's interesting for me about this is that um, when, when I think about continuous integration, I, I probably become, if anything, more strident about um, actually the original version of continuous integration, which is not about tools, but rather, are we integrating all of our code all the time? So this is more like trunk-based development, you know, make, making sure people are committing on master as opposed to people having branches. On the feature branch. That's yeah. <laughs> okay. It's finished. Yeah. That's on this. I haven't merged the branch for a couple months, but yeah, my, my feature's done. That's that's right. Uh, so, or even even a few days. I mean, a couple of months, hopefully everyone recognizes that is, is extreme, though, although I'm sure that, that there's lots and lots of that out there. You should see some <laughs> of the folks I see. So I think at the, at the time, I, I was thinking more about the how do we automatically deploy to our environments? How do we promote things? Um, I think it, it, since then, I've probably become more focused on, you know, get rid of the, the darn branches, you know, make sure that the code, everyone's working on the same code, uh, which is what uh, Jim Shore was after when he talked about why I hate cruise control back in mm-hmm. 2006. Yep. Uh, I think he, really in a sense, he won me over uh, um, without even trying. so He has the rubber chicken method of continuous integration, which uh, I will link to in the short show notes. It's, it's definitely worth knowing about. It involves no code whatsoever, no uh, continuous integration tools. 
Right. But I think I, this is the case where I get to, you know, uh, have my cake and eat it too. So I'll say both versions of condition integration would, would be on my list. Indeed. And one thing just to watch out for here, maybe we could do a whole other podcast on this sometime, but there's a mechanism, Git flow, and there's a whole set of practices here, which are very focused on branch-based development. And I think you and I both are not big fans of that particular method. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Um, probably more than, I could say something stronger than that, but we'll just leave it there for now. <laughs> Maybe someone will ask us a question about it and we can talk about it next time. That's right. Uh, and then finally, that um, uh, practice number six I had down was retrospectives. And um, yeah, retrospectives, I think for me, are still on that must-have list uh, uh, because to me, that's the the, the heart of of, of learning. Uh, maybe I, I wouldn't do retrospectives in the same way uh, at the time, which was again tied to iterations that uh, once a week or once every two weeks, whenever your iteration ends, the team is going to do a retrospective on how that particular iteration went. I've seen now retrospective as a much more pervasive practice. And um, so for me, a retrospective might be uh, a stand up as an opportunity for retrospective. It's an opportunity for us to talk about how. Uh, the, the previous day went and what to do differently the next day. Um, I might do it after uh, the delivery of a feature. Um, and any, any, any excuse really for us to retrospect and say, what can we learn from this? How did it go? Um, I'm, I'm a fan of. So if anything, I'm, I would say I'm, I'm looking at reflection and reflective practices as a, as a more prevalent, coherent part of what we're doing all the time um, than a distinct uh, thing that we do based on the calendar uh, which is how I probably saw it in 2008. And of course, it's the 12th Agile Principle, which we covered in an earlier episode, to have a regular cadence of reflection and improvement. One thing I often see is that, uh, again, like continuous integration, this has become quite a common practice, at least in my world. So most teams will say, yes, and of course, we have our retrospective every two weeks, but they will do things that don't promote good reflective and improvement practices like, well, we, yeah, we don't do any of the actions or we only have people from this team and not from that team participate. So I'm often improving the retrospectives that people have, and it's definitely on my very important list. And good news is that most people seem to have something. Bad news is it's often not quite where I'd like it to be. Right. So, so that's my list. Um, one thing I'll I'll say, looking looking back at my article, at least I, I did at the time. Uh, it sort of slightly embarrassed me now that I would write it in terms of practices. But at least I I did say um, these are a list of practices you know without which or their equivalents you will mm. fail. So I I did say I did leave the door open on a crack, saying you know okay. you need, you need some equivalents. So it's something like the planning game, uh, you know, you described not doing it. But I think those are cross functional conversation. That was really the moral equivalent. Mm -hmm. Looking back at my list, the only one I really would definitely say um, I, I've left behind as as optional. I, it, if it if it works well for a team, I'm not, not opposed, but is, is iterations. Yep. So Chris Matz, uh, you know, who was the first person who talked to me about Kanban. Uh, I think he, uh, he, he would deserve a lot of credit uh, for changing my mind on, on that point. Well, it looks like we've given a quite comprehensive answer to PJ's question, which was really great. I hope that PJ is uh, satisfied and maybe we'll follow up with more questions if we've triggered more thoughts for him. We'd love to hear more questions from any of you. And if anyone wants to share practices that they left behind, uh, we'd like to hear about it and uh, we might even include them in our podcast. Excellent. You'll find us at troubleshootingagile.com where you'll find a place to write to us and ask your question. Thanks a lot, Squirrel. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Jeffrey. 